If you like to gamble, I tell you I'm your man. You win some, lose some, it's all the same to me. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Motorcast, the official Motorhead podcast. I am your host, Howard H. Smith. Some of you may know me as lead singer of UK thrash band uh, Acid Rain. Some of you may know me as host of my other uh, podcast, Talking Bollocks. You'll see my name is highlighted in the description of this podcast. That's because it's a link. If you click on that, that'll take you to all of my other podcasts. But here, it's all about Motorhead, and I am all about being your guide through the world of Motorhead. And today's episode is no different. But in case you weren't already aware, following on from your Ace of Spades 40th anniversary celebration, we now have the 40th anniversary celebratory edition of the greatest live album ever, No Sleep Till Hammersmith. And it's coming to you in all sorts of formats. Um, There is a hardback book packs in two CD and triple LP formats, plus a deluxe four CD box set featuring all three shows that make up the record of No Sleep. Um, It's just amazing. And there's, of course... That's never, ever been released in its entirety before. There's all sorts of other bits and pieces included in the story of the album and many unseen photos and a bevy of era-specific treasures. If you're listening to this, you're obviously deep, deep, deep into the band and you need these additions because they are quite simply awesome. Now, please do not forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you are listening to this. There should be a button that says subscribe. Click on that and every episode will arrive in your device every two weeks. And of course, you can go back and listen to all of the ones that you haven't listened to already. And why not tell a friend? Tell somebody who's really into Motorhead or just really into music that there's a cool podcast with loads of behind-the-scenes stories. And they'll thank you for it. You know they will. Now, talking of really cool stories about Motorhead, Rick Saunders has got quite a few. Um, He was a student who has done everything from photograph the band to playing pool with Lemmy. And that nearly cost him his life. And you are going to hear all of these great stories now. So, without further ado, this is uh, my chat with Rick Saunders from a couple of weeks ago. So, Rick, I know you've listened to the Motorcast, so as you will, will know, you'll be expecting this. How did you first um, encounter Motorhead? I, I guess back when I was in school, big Hawkwind fan, when I was sort of 14, 15, 74, 75... I was vaguely aware that Lemmy had left and started a new band, uh, but didn't really hear much more about it. And then I actually went to see them. Uh, I think it was around about January 77. They played Basingstoke Technical College. And that was, you know, just blew me away. I'd never seen anything like that before. Went up to see them a couple of times the same year. It, uh, I think it was the Camden Music Machine, um, and then the album and that first single on Chiswick came out sort of second half of the year in 1977, um, and basically they had me hooked from the the the, the, the get go, uh, you know, been a, a lifelong fan ever since. That's um, I, I, that is such a 70s 80s kind of gig venue, isn't it? Basingstoke Technical College. <laughs> it was it was rough and ready, but uh, they were the, the the good old days when uh, I mean they were like I've seen them three times within the first hundred gigs ever played. Um, it was when the band used to come out before the show and they'd just go into the public bar, you know, and meet the fans. Yeah, uh, I think I actually actually played pool against Lemmy. Uh, in the technical college foyer. Um, You know, as soon as he came out, he put some money on the table, and then, of course, everybody put all their 10 Ps down, (laughs) hoping he'd stay on. (laughs) Winner uh, winner stays on, gig cancelled. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And uh, I I, I actually, I must have been about, 
eighth or ninth in in the queue. He stayed on, and then I made the huge mistake of actually beating him at pool because, oh. of course, the bloke who was next on the table was a huge biker. <laughs> and I, as the black rolled down, then I realised I'm staying on and Lemmy's <laughs> going off, and this biker's looking at me like I'm going to rip your head off. <laughs> you must be looking. Yeah, you must you be. Stay lo- on. You stay on. <laughs> you must be looking at that biker, thinking, "Yeah, his dream is not to play me at pool." Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Little squirt I was. <laughs> um, I, I, and those kind of things really did. You know, I, I know you're, you're telling the story. They really did happen. It was a. It was a much. It was a much simpler times, I guess. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, they had a really hardcore sort of fan base but it was very small so um you know they just felt comfortable in that environment going out and chatting to people you know go back to the dressing room and then play the gig and is Um, and is that how you sort of is that how you you know is that first first meeting with lemmy beating him at pool did you know did did that lead you on to what ended up happening in the future or was it was there another meeting involved Nah, no, that, that, I mean, that was just purely a, a, a fan being lucky enough to play pool against his hero. So I saw them again in, next time I saw them, I think it was August 79, when they played Reading Festival, which was fantastic. And I just finished my first year at art college, where you do a kind of general foundation course. Uh, and I... It, you know, we'd finished that year. A group of us went up to Reading. I took a few photos kind of from the middle of the crowd, but I had a really crappy camera. I can remember going back to the tent uh, with everyone else afterwards and saying, you know, one day I'm going to photograph them properly. So you know, all of these people had done general arts courses, and I was the only one that was going off to do photography. A couple of them were going off to other colleges to do sculpture, few of them were doing painting that kind of thing so it was a bit of like a goodbye for all of us and in September I started in uh, West Surrey uh, Art Art College doing a three-year photography course um, which was great and kind of one one of the things that really inspired me um, and it's, it's nothing to do with Motorhead but almost my first lecture at college was a guy called Tim Page um, you probably haven't heard of him but Tim Page was a Vietnam war photographer and he oh, had right. kind of been through hell and back I mean he was a fantastic photographer but he you know he, he'd been shot up in a friendly fire incident he'd had agent orange dropped on him uh, his, his last one was uh, he, he was helping injured soldiers onto a helicopter and a landmine went off underneath him um, so he, he comes along to, to the college and have you, have you seen Apocalypse Now? Oh yes, very much so so you know the character that Dennis Hopper plays that sort of manic dysfunctional photographer? Yes, yes so it's widely accepted Dennis Hopper's character is based on Tim Page. Ah, right. Tim Page, in reality, wasn't as bad as Dennis Hopper was. But, you know, he had been seriously injured. He'd actually lost part of his brain in in the landmine. And he was a very strange kind of person to be given a lecture. But he gave us this uh, lecture, and and it was was kind of... you know, an inspirational moment for me because he, you know, he was passionate, he was erratic, it was triple X rated, but, you know, kept, kept delivering this message, you know, get the photo, get the photo, do whatever you've got to get your photos, you know, lie, cheat, beg, borrow, steal, get the photo, because at the end of the day, that's all that's important. And I kind of came out of that thinking, wow, you know, this has just changed what photography means to me. This has really kind of brought it to life. And as it happened, the Bomber Tour was about five weeks away after that lecture. And the first gig of the Bomber Tour was at Bracknell Sports Centre, which I think was about November 79. 
So I'm coming out of the lecture and I'm thinking, well, you know, I've always wanted to do a bit of rock and roll photography. I've never done anything. Motorhead's my favourite band. You know, how difficult can this be? So uh, next, you know, in those days, there's no internet. No one's got a mobile phone. I didn't know how to get my foot sort of through the door. So I ended up ringing the sports centre um, and kind of got a bit lucky because I ended up speaking to the manager of the sports centre straight away. You know, if it had been a proper music venue, they'd have told me to sling my hook. <laughs> yeah. This guy, you know, they have, they have a gig there about once every eight months. So, <laughs> you know, and, and Monday to Friday, this bloke is just the sports centre manager. So for luckily for you, he, they, they don't know the score. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, he's trying to be helpful. So I'll give him this story. I'm a photography student. I, I understand you've got a rock band playing there in a couple of weeks. I'd really <laughs> like to come along, take some photos of, of setting up a gig, you know, and then maybe taking it down afterwards. Just a little kind of time story through the day. And this bloke's like really helpful. And you can almost hear him rustling papers around on his desk. Going, yeah, yeah. I'm let me see. Now, I, I can't actually let you in on the day because I won't be. There you go. <laughs> he says, oh, I've got a letter here from someone called Greybray. I think that's the management company of the band. So, you know, now I've got a name and now I've got a phone number. Yeah. So I said, oh, wow, fantastic. So uh, went, went, went back to college. Next day I'm back down, you know, and all of this is done on a public phone box with a pocket full of 10 peas. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a real amateur hour. So I, I, I rang the Grey Grey office and uh, this kind of quite grumpy sounding guy answers the phone and I give it, you know, my, my name's Saunders, I'm, I'm a photography student. I, I'd really like to come along to the Bracknell show and, and, and take some photos. Um, you know, just of, the, just of the thing being set up, you know, I don't want to stay all evening. And this guy's like almost in disbelief going, how do we know you're an art student? Which of all the questions I anticipated, that wasn't one of them. <laughs> and, and I classically said, well, I've got a student union card and no money. And it's sort of a <laughs> guffaw of laughter. And he said, uh, oh, for God's sake, he said, oh, all right, give me a phone number and I'll get someone to give you a call back. And, uh, of course, I didn't have a phone. I'm a student living in the halls of residence. And I said, look, there is one payphone in the whole building. And last week, someone got a bit wrecked and like ripped it off the wall. So, there's, you know, you can't ring me. I'm uncontactable. <laughs> and he saw enough, for God's sake. He said, all right, what name shall I put on the path? And it was like, you're joking. Brilliant. And uh, he said, when you get there... Find Graham Mitchell. He's the tour manager. And, you know, once you're okay with Graham, you can take your photos. That's so, uh, you know, the show, I guess, was about, uh, you know, three, four weeks later. Um, so, of course, I turn up, you know, about half ten in the morning. There's, there's no one around. And then the humpers turn up and they start to build the stage. And this is literally it's in the middle of a, a, a sports centre. So it's all like you know, netball courts and basketball courts painted yeah. on the floor. Yeah. And then they're just building, you know, building the stage and, and the PA's coming in. Yeah. And then they start bringing in the bomber. Now, this was the first time that the bomber had ever been seen in, in the UK, the bomber lighting rig. Yeah. So, of course, you know, I'm, what the hell is that? You know, because it's all... Like it's a giant Meccano kit that they're gradually putting together. And, you know, by about sort of two o'clock in the afternoon, oh, it's an airplane, all right, yeah, that looks good. Then the road crew start turning up and, you know, the atmosphere changes a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going around. All I've got is Graham Mitchell, tour manager. And, and I didn't know what to expect. You know, I didn't know what a tour manager was about. I didn't know whether it was one of the road crew that had been promoted or whether it was like a proper business manager. So I'm hardly yeah. anticipating, you know, a kind of 50-year-old bald bloke with a suit and a briefcase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's quite legitimately, and, having never met one, tour manager does exactly, sound like, yeah, it, it, it's, it's exactly. that kind of role. Um, and, it, 
and, and then one of the troops, oh, that's, that's Graham over there. And I kind of looked up and, you know, it's about the coolest bloke I'd ever seen in my life. You know? <laughs> Long black hair, he's Brilliant. about six foot one, yeah. cowboy boots, black leather jacket. I mean, he looked the beast. Everything he you'd expect. Had, from a t- from exactly. everything you'd expect a, t- a motorhead tour manager to look like, really. He, he, exactly. I mean, he, you just knew he was the real deal as soon as you set eyes on him. Yeah. So I went up, yeah, hello, yeah, my name's Rick Saunders. I, I spoke to someone at the Bray office and said to come see you to get a photo pass. And he just looked at me and said, never heard of you. Yeah. And it's like... <laughs> You know, my head went down, my shoulders folded. Of course, you know, I haven't got a letter. There's no one I can ring. And it's like, I'm in touching distance of my dream. And and, and the gatekeeper's saying no. And uh, he, he could see I'd taken a knock. And he, he just almost burst out laughing. He said, I'll tell you what, why don't we actually have a look at the list and see if you are on there. <laughs> and I trotted off after him. And sure enough, the list is there. And, and I'm halfway down. So, you know, everything's good. He did a little photo past me, and he was good as gold, Graham. You know, he took me round to venue and, you know, went around the photo pit. He said, you can come in here, you can come up and stand on this side of the stage, but you can't stand on that side of the stage. You can't go in the dressing room, but if you want to go in the crew room, you know, have a sandwich, have a beer, and it was, uh, uh, I'm in heaven. You know, this yeah. is fantastic also bearing so, um, in mind bearing in mind that you've gone literally from there's a possibility that you know nothing is going to happen and the tour manager is going to say you know has said i've never heard of you so you know yeah. you need to turn on your heel and leave and now you're basically part of the family yeah i mean i wouldn't say part of the family straight away but i have yes. the pass you know once you've got the pass you, you you're you know you're 10 feet tall um, yeah. So I did the gig, and you know it's fantastic. First time I'd ever photographed a band in my life. You know what? What start? I'd, I'd had to borrow some money to buy a, a dozen rolls of film. So you know, had a little chat with the, with, with the band when they turned up, but you know they were a little bit apprehensive. Obviously, they were they were worried the new album had come out. This was the first time the bomber lighting rig was going to be used, so I didn't get in their way. But did all the photos, went back to college, developed them all up, and then I kind of, I suppose, selected about, you know, best 12, 15. And I thought, well, I've got to try and keep this relationship going. So I printed them up as like A3 photos, and I made it into a, a book a bit of cardboard cover and everything. And by this time, I'd found out that Doug Smith was the manager. So I, I, I sent the book off with a little letter just saying, it, you know, thanks for a great night, you know, brilliant show. Here's some photos. I hope they might be of interest. And I didn't hear anything. This was a kind of roundabout in end of November, early December. Then maybe end of January, beginning of February the next year, this letter lands. And it's, it's from uh, one of the girls in the office and just said, you know, Doug and the band really like the photos. Would you like to come up and have a chat? <laughs> it's like, would I? <laughs> you know, wow. just, just let me know. So yeah. uh, went up and um, met, met, uh, met Doug at uh, the Great Western Road office. Um, also met Sue Manley. So Sue, I don't know if you remember your, your interview with Stefan, but Sue was the girl in the office who sort of looked after Stefan when you know, he ah, wanted yes. to do those interviews when he was about 15. You know, she was lovely. Um, it was a guy called Dave Gilligan, who was a bit like kind of Doug's right-hand man. Um, and I think Motorcycle Irene was, was working in the office at that time as well, but it's like, keep out of her way <laughs> she was quite a scary scary lady um although you know as i got to know her she she was absolutely lovely but doug was great we had a we had a kind of 20 minute chat and he just wanted to find out a bit about me 
Um, and then he put me in contact with Alan Burridge, who was doing the fanzine. And, you know, Alan and I subsequently exchanged letters, and I sent some photos, which he used in the fanzine, so that was all great. Um, and then I got invited back to the office, possibly around about the end of April, met Doug again, and he invited me up to the uh, Bingley Barn Dance, ah, which right, was yeah. the, uh, the, the one-off show they did, I think, Saxon Girls' School, Bardis one Bill. And he also said, you know, guys in the band really like your little photo book. Could you do three more? <laughs> it's like, you know, my, my first commission, in effect, and my customers are Lemmy, Phil, and Eddie, you know, wow. dream come true. Yeah. So uh, ended up, uh, I, I think the Bingley Barn Dance was kind of end of July 1980. Um, so I actually went up with um, uh, my sister and we met Alan Burridge and, and got on a coach that he'd arranged. Went up, um, that, that was the first time I was given a proper access all areas pass so you know i could actually get into the dressing room now yeah. um you know which was fantastic it was, a, it was a proper motorhead laminated pass um you know absolute prized possession yeah um, it, it gave gave the guys the little books that i've made up and you know that they were they were really good phil's dad i think was actually a photographer so phil was kind of quite interested in photography anyway you know eddie was eddie perfect gentleman and lemmy was a little bit worse for wear because this was a kind of a bit of a famous one where i think he'd been up for about three nights and he actually ended up sort of collapsing a little bit at the end of the show um right. you know, he, was, he was good as gold and like his first question was you know have you been paid for this and I said, well, yeah, 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 sort of, yeah. Well, yeah, I've got my expenses back, <laughs> which was all I charged Doug, you know. That had occurred to me to try and make a profit out of it. But Doug paid me my, my £45 expenses that it literally cost me a penny to make these books up. Yeah. And I always remember Lemmy sort of put his arm around me and he said, son, if you want to stay in this business, try and make a profit. Brilliant advice. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't really heed it because I never really made any money out of it. Um, oh, never. But, you know, it was good. Um, fantastic show. Met met girls' school for the first time, and they were great. Um, and it was the one where they had Jean uh, Charles, who was that uh, Queen Elizabeth lookalike. Oh yeah. She came on at the end of the uh, motorhead set, kind of gave them all a, a silver disc for Bomber. Um, Brilliant. So, you know, that was fantastic. Um, and from that show, you know, then I was in a bit of dialogue with sort of Doug and, and the Grey Bray team. So they used a few of those photos and I was maybe going up to see them. I don't know, once every three months or something, just sort of seeing what was around the corner. Um, and then Ace of Spades obviously came out towards the end of uh, 1980. Yeah. Um, so I, I did I did a few of those those gigs from the Ace of Spades tour, and and it's just starting to feel kind of comfortable now, you know, because people are actually recognising me and they know who I am. And yeah. I'm not gonna. You know, nick anything or, or <laughs> yeah. twat around them, and you know the, the, the crew were fantastic. You know, nothing but you know encouragement. Because you know, bear in mind, I was pretty young. You know, I was nineteen, twenty when all this was going on. Yeah. I was still, you know, still a student and would be till eighty-two. You know, I was fundamentally a fan, but I was trying to be as professional as I could, you know, while I was basically inside. I was a kid in Disneyland, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, again, you know, a few of the photos from the Ace of Spades tour ended up dark and he was all happy with it. Um, and then No Sleep to Hammersmith, sort of in the pipeline. So I know they did a, a, a couple of 
gigs, I think, at Leeds, Newcastle, yeah. where most of that was actually recorded. That's right, yeah. Um, I, I didn't go to either of those. And I got a call back, and it was Doug basically saying they were going to release Motorhead as a single from the album, and they wanted to use a couple of my shots for the picture disc and the single cover. Wow. It's like, ah, oh, you are joking me. <laughs> this is... This is more than I could ever have imagined. Yeah. And, uh, you know, got, got paid about 150 quid, which, you know, in those days, it was a lot like winning the lottery, you know. I was yes. I was permanently in debt. I think my student grant was about a grand a year, you know. So if somebody's given me 150 quid, that's like... I can eat for the next six weeks, you know. I mean, and this and, is this um, is on top of, and this is on top of like amazing news as regards, you know, the the, the release and wanting to use your pictures, and then yeah, yeah. and then the money as well. I mean, this is just like you, you must have been, um, you must have been over the moon. Oh, uh, you know, feet literally didn't touch the ground. So, you know, I'm. I'm, I'm trying to carry on being a normal photography student, do all the coursework and all the rest of it, and then every now and then I'm just... So I was starting to build this really weird photography portfolio that was like you know, a bit of landscape, a bit of fashion, a load of motorhead, a bit more fashion, and a bit of girls' school. <laughs> and then, you know, it, was, it was starting to get become a bit lopsided, shall we say. But, you yeah. know, the... the the, the course lectures were cool about it, and the, you know the important thing was, well, I was actually getting slightly better. I was learning stuff. Um, you know, there weren't digital cameras in those days, so actually getting any sort of photograph at all is, you know, it's quite hard work because obviously the lighting's up and down all over the place. It's, uh, you know. You, You've got to almost anticipate what the band are going to do and, and where they're going to be and what the lighting is going to be like and then just bang off a few shots and hope that one of them's, you know, A, the right exposure and B, in focus. And you just kind of get a little bit better at that every time you do it. But, you know, I certainly wasn't a good photographer at that stage at all. But, but I think it's important to um, it's important to remind people as well that, you're, you know, as you said, all of those things that you're having to take into account not only are you, you know, you're you take you you're basically taking pictures blindly that you are not going to see for a few days because you've got to get home Absolutely. and then you've got to get all this Absolutely. film developed and then a few days later after the gig, you will find out what if you, any of your pictures were were any good. I mean, you know, compared to where we are now with photography, that. It's, it, it just seems like it's from another world, which essentially it was. But it's you're literally yeah, for those few yeah. days, you've just got your fingers crossed, going, "Well, I, I, I hope something comes out." Oh, it's it, you know you were living with your, your heart and your mouth, and you'd only got to have kind of one camera setting completely wrong and not realise it. You could shoot a roll of film, and it would just come out black, you know. And uh, <laughs> you know, and, and again in those days, you know. You kind of got really used to trying to load and unload film into a camera almost in the dark because you're doing it effectively under the stage. You know, a couple of times I'd, I'd take a film out of the camera and I'd actually dropped it and you're actually scrabbling around under the stage trying to find a, a, a film before you can put the new one in. You know, it was pretty chaotic. I can only imagine, um, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was great though. It was, it was good fun. But, it's like, it's uh, like yeah, trying to it's like trying to reload, a, like trying to reload a gun whilst under fire. Uh, very much so, yeah. And and of course, you know the the noise. You know, you're you're down in the photo pit. You're absolutely, you know, at the front. The noise is just unbelievable. And and literally, the camera would vibrate in my hands. You know, <laughs> it, it was incredible. Um, especially that I, Bingley show. Yeah. The Bingley show was was known to be an exceptionally loud show as well. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. I mean, it was a it was a bit of horrible venue to be honest. With you. It was effectively it was a giant cattle shed. I mean, you know, I understand these days that's all they really do there is just have sort of cattle auctions, and it, it was it was pretty grim. 
you know, about 15,000 people and eight toilets. And I, I think the bar ran dry by about three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> it, it, it was a little chaotic, but it was just a great big cow shed echo chamber. So it was you know, fantastically loud. But yeah, it was a good show. It was a good show. And then kind of towards the end of 81, we kind of build up to the big one, which is the Port Vale show. Yeah. Um, the, the, the heavy metal holocaust. So I obviously knew this one was coming up, and it happened that I was actually in the Grey Bray office. Um, I was there the morning after Black Sabbath had pulled out. Because um, originally it was going to be Black Sabbath and Motorhead co-headlining, and I didn't realise it at the time, but there was a, quite a bit of politics going on in the background. And I think that Lemmy had always predicted that, that Black Sabbath wouldn't take the second, second slot on the bill. Um, and, and the morning that they pulled out happened to be a, 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 one of the meetings I had. So, so I walked in, and of course everyone's absolutely furious, you know, almost to the point of wondering if, if the show could still go ahead. And it was only six, seven weeks away. Um, but, you know, Ozzy Osbourne came in, and by a few, it was such a better replacement. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the Port Vale show was really special. It was, it was that motorhead at the peak of their power, you know, they'd had you know, that succession of studio albums that just got better and better and better. Yeah. And then No Sleep to Hammersmith, which went straight in at number one. Indeed. And then this was almost the big celebration show to kind of cap that all off. Um, and I, I went up there uh, with Dave Gilligan, the Monday or the Tuesday before the show and, and Doug had sort of said to me, look, I just want you to photograph everything. It's like, what do you mean everything? Just everything. Go up there, t- take photos of them setting up, you know, on, on Friday and Saturday, just photograph everything. And he's like, well, I can't photograph everything. It's a, you know, it's a football ground. And uh, I went up with Dave Gilligan and, and, but it was only when you kind of got there for the first time, kind of realised how big it was. The stage and, and the, the new design, and, and I think they struggled to put it up. And they, they were almost like working 24-hour shifts just to get it ready in time. But that first time I went up, you know, they were starting to bring the PA in. And it was like, how many speakers? And it was just this... The wall of speakers that just almost seemed to touch the sky. It's like this is going to be seriously loud. Yeah, the great domed sort of stage arrangement. It looked fantastic. Port Vale itself was a bit of an old-fashioned sort of football ground. You know, all, all the old terraces and the uh, um, you know the floodlights, and then you just had this kind of contemporary monstrosity emerging from the, the ground, uh, one corner of the ground. You know, it was, it was brilliant. And then I went back up with Dave, I think, I think it was either Thursday or Friday, and the gig was on Saturday. Um, and, and we went up with Sue Manley and uh, Motorcycle Irene. And, and and I actually ended up on the that Friday. I slept on the crew bus because no one had thought to sort of book a room anywhere, which was great. Um, but I didn't get a lot of sleep, as you can imagine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I mean, part of it because you know they were a pretty lively bunch, but I was also conscious. You know, I was the only person sleeping on the crew bus that wasn't actually part of the crew, and I thought, you know. Am I going to be the victim of some sort of practical joke? You know, wake up with my shoes full of custard on my face painted purple. Yeah. I did not get a lot of sleep. And then the day of the show was absolutely fantastic. 
Um, Sue introduced us to, you know, Ozzy and Sharon Osbourne, which was good. Um, again, I had kind of complete access, you know, throughout the whole uh, ground and the stage area. Um, the support bands were, were, were great. The artists were brilliant. Um, I think some of the American acts, I was sort of thinking, do they really quite fit? Um, I think it was, I think it's Riot, Frank Marino, um, but, you know, Ozzy Osbourne is amazing. That's a really good show that he put on. Yeah. Um, and then Motorhead themselves, I mean, you know, it, it was a right proper celebration. Probably played about a two-hour set. You know, they played everything. The volume was phenomenal. Um, <laughs> you know, f- f- folklore that tells you that... Uh, about complaints from about eight or nine miles away, and I think yeah. the, uh, the management team had had to uh, bus off a load of uh, elderly local residents to Blackpool for the weekend just to sort of get shot of them. Um, but you know, it it, it was amazing, uh, and and I worked it with uh, another photographer who, who's kind of a bit of a house favourite. It's got Steve Sparks, and. Um, Poor old Steve, for some reason, he volunteered to take some photos. And I think he, he was either inside the bomber or he was up on the lighting rig during Motorhead set. And, of course, once he's up there, you can't come down. Yeah. <laughs> it was so hot up there. He reckons he lost about a stone and a half. Oh, God. Almost died of dehydration because they, they, they put him up before Motorhead went on. And then, of course, no one could get him down until it was all over. <laughs> the, the poor bloke just looked like a shadow of himself. The, these are the days before. These are the days before health and safety. So yeah, it's, oh, uh, health it's... and safety was out the window. I mean, some of the photos yeah. that I got of the, of the riggers sort of building the the, the 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 stage and the dome above the stage. I mean, you know, it, even now the photos frighten me. Looking back, you know, just guys climbing this sort of sixty seven foot. And it's not even a scaffold tower. It's it's just they're, they're just climbing almost loose bits of scaffold, just trying to bolt bits together and hope that it stays upright. Well, well, speaking <laughs> of speaking of looking at these pictures now, um, do you you know have you have you sort of gathered them all together? Do they are, have you got any plans for them? Um, yeah, I mean they they they, they stayed with me uh, over the last forty years. Uh, I've, uh, I've, I've sort of shared a selection of them with Miles uh, from BMG. Yeah, so, I've, I've, I've seen yeah. them as well. Um, very impressive. Very impressive. I mean, it's just, I think because of the, it, there's, a, there's a real kind of um, input, um, kind of backstage nature to, to, the, to the ones that I saw. It's 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 less about get fit pictures of the band and more of what you've been talking about getting pictures of sort of you know the process and the kind of yeah. the daily things that happen. So there's a real behind the scenes feel to them that that really came across you know very loudly to me. Yeah, and and I think uh, you know you know it's always nice if you can string some photos together and they sort of tell their own story. So yes, you know it's great when you get you know the, the, the classic rock star photos, but it's nice to put that in a slightly bigger context where actually it's a bit more about the experience of going to a show and seeing what goes on behind the scenes and messing around in the dressing room and actually you know the road crew doing what they do best, which is work fantastically hard. Um, you know, some great photos of, of, of sound checks. They're, they're possibly some of my favourite photos that I've actually done of the band ever. Was was just that sound check at Port Vale on the Friday. You know, everybody's really relaxed. It's actually daylight as opposed to night time. Yeah. It just just kind of comes together in a really sort of human way, which is which is nice. 
it gives it a completely so. different it gives it a completely different air doesn't it because you're seeing performers not performing yeah yeah um, you know and and and, and they're concentrating. They want it to be right. They know it's an important show, you know. So they're they're getting quite touchy if, if something's not right or the sounds not as they like it. Um, but you know that that's that's passion. You know that's what it's all about, and that's what that's what makes bands like Motorhead, you know, so important, and so good. You know, they're not in it for the money or the fame. They're in it to give people a good time. They wanted to put on the best show they possibly could, and and you know it, it showed all the way through. Yeah, yeah, and and that's what that's what kind of you know is is the theme of Motorhead, is that you know that dedication that you know that professionalism that always delivering because that's one thing that we keep coming back to. Everybody says you know look they always delivered. And, uh, you know, they, they didn't let anyone down ever, I think. But uh, I, I, I think for me, my, my personal little highlight from that Paul Vale show, um, it was something that almost no one else noticed, but um, Lemmy had taken up with him a spare pair of boots. You know, he always used to wear these kind of white cowboy boots. Where I positioned myself at the start of the gig, there was a pair of boots next to me. And it's like, why the hell are these boots here? And, and one of the roadies said, oh, let me think one of his heels is going to go on the boots that he's got on. I thought, well, okay, fair enough, but why not put the new ones on now? <laughs> why take the risk? Yeah. Sure enough, halfway through the show, his heel goes on, on one of the boots. And, and I actually kind of clocked it happen because I saw, saw him, him stumble and luckily it was just nearly at the end of one of the numbers. And as it happened, I was the nearest person to him. So obviously I'm hit behind the speakers, but he's right next to him. So as the number comes to the end, he's sort of hopping across to get his boots, trying to get his broken boot off his foot and his guitar's sort of getting in the way. And... You know, literally takes his guitar off and he just hands it to me. And, and for a fraction <laughs> of, of, of a second, I'm at the side of the stage with a live bass guitar in front of kind of 35,000 people. And for just a nanosecond, I thought, power chord? <laughs> and then I kind of got radical by half the crew. like, don't touch it, don't touch it. So, well, he gave it to me and I didn't ask for it. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, it was all good and kind of, you know, nobody noticed. But uh, wow. it's just one of those little moments that stand out. Uh, well, that is, I mean, that's something, that is something to say you've been stood side stage and Lemmy's just handed you his bass to hold for, a, you know, for a, for a few seconds. I mean, that's that's yeah. a claim to fame right there, never mind all of the photography that you've done. Yeah, <laughs> just a pity no one ever got off the <laughs> That's uh, um, so. So, um, and, and what happened after sort of Port Vale? Because obviously, um, I mean, the way this, well, the, the, the way the this story. After, yeah, go on. Sorry, I was going to say the immediate thing that happened after that was was a hell of a rush home. So, as I said, I slept on the crew bus um, on the Saturday night, and then it had been arranged. I can't remember who we did it, but someone in the office had said, "If, if you can get." photos to the NME they'll use one of your shots um, for write-up in the NME that week which yeah. you know again you know art student desperate to get anything published at all it's like yeah I'm onto that definitely yeah so I had to get home from from Port Vale on the Sunday I think Dave Gilligan took us back to London then I had to get back to college I had something like 35 rolls of black and white film that I had to develop so I sort of stayed up all Sunday night developing film Yeah, got them all dried all cut up and then I'm straight into the college Monday morning when the doors open and start to put together contact sheets because basically I've got to get some pictures to the NME picture editor by I think 11 o'clock on the Tuesday yeah. otherwise I've missed the deadline yeah. 
so all day Monday, I'm printing everything I can. Um, it probably got, you know, a dozen shots I thought were okay. And uh, as it happened, they actually used one of my photos, the full page photo, and then wrote the, uh, wrote the kind of geek review all down the dry ice next to Lemmy, which is really nice. Uh, and, and again, you know, it was 50 quid and it, it felt like 50 quid that I'd really earned. <laughs> well and truly, I mean, that, yeah, getting that much film developed in such a short time. So you must have thought of this, you must have thought of this point that, you know, you're, you're in with Lemmy, you're, you know, you've got, you've had, you've had pictures used for releases, you've had pictures used by NME, you know, a, a, a career in photography beckons. I hope so. Ultimately, it didn't happen. But, um, you know, I, I think by the time it was all over, by, by you know, the end of 1982, when I finished college, I, I was a little bit burnt out. And I was just fed up with having no money, if I'm honest with you. Yeah. You know, I'd gone through four years of art college, literally barely knowing where the next sort of check was coming from. And I just wanted a job where I knew I was going to get paid on a Friday. So um, yeah, living living hand well, to, temporary living hand to mouth has you know, kind of taken its toll on you. It, it, it had a little bit. I mean, my life was sort of starting to change direction. But, and uh, I, I, I guess it just you know it, it, the end of me coming to to the end of college at the end of eighty two and and first line-up sort of disbanding happened almost at the same time and it felt like the right time to just take stock and think about what I wanted to do. My intention was to just drop photography, pay off some debts, get a job and then get back into it. But unfortunately, you know, that actually never happened in the end and uh, ended up doing something completely different. uh, Well, I was just going to say, I I was just going to say that that that, I, I recognise that, and it's like you know, if you if you ever leave something like photography, the music business, whatever, it, it's like it's it's you you've, you're starting from zero again, trying to get back in. It, it is difficult, and you know, photography particularly. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, the, the they used to, you know, the, the the job progression was you try and get a foot in the door with a, a name photographer and, and be their assistant and you probably work like a slave for sort of two or three years. And it's all about, you know, picking up their little hints and tips and also getting a bit of access to their sort of client list. But you know, if you ended up working for a proper name fashion photographer, you had to pay them for the privilege of being their assistant. That was how it used to work. <laughs> So oh, you know, inevitably, it became this really cliquey closed circle where only people that had got some money could kind of get into that world and be part of it. Yeah. And I wasn't there at all. You know? And yeah. I didn't want to work like a slave but for someone else just to be able to look at their address book and you know maybe do a few things on my own. But um, well, especially you when know, you've worked for these, ro- you know, you've worked for these rock gods, Motorhead, who've, who've, you know, treated you on on the same level. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, I, I look back on those years with nothing but absolute kind of fondness and affection. Yeah, best sort of three and a half years. Of, of, I won't say my whole life, but it was so exciting. You know, it, everything that I wanted just sort of fell into place really easily. And, and I know I had a proper little rock and roll experience of my own that I'll take to the grave, you know, and I'm forever grateful for that opportunity. Well, I, I look, firstly, thank you for, for taking the time to, to share that that adventure with us secondly I, I think it's a great example you know you, you you mentioned that you know this this adventure just happened and all the rest of it but you know what whenever anyone says luck it's all about making your own luck and you made your own luck because you picked up the phone and rang that venue right at the very beginning 
and and that is what led to to everything else. Looking back, yeah, that, that was chapter one. But uh, you know, a, a lot of luck, a lot of coincidences, and uh, you know, j- just just a bit of blessing from above at some point, I guess. Well, the metal gods, whatever you want to call them, were were, were definitely shining on you. Um, Indeed, they were. And and you've always got those pictures. Yep, and you know, unless someone wants to put an offer in, they're going to come to the grave with me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll uh, I'll I'll do a nice uh, I'll do a nice job as your agent, mate. I only take uh, thirty (laughs) percent. Oh, look, look th- oh, thanks brilliant. again on behalf of everybody listening because it's been a fascinating listen and thank you for sharing that period of your life where you were, you know, a de facto official motorhead photographer. That is, that's some achievement. Well done, mate. Well, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's been a blast. And you know it's coming. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed doing it. It was a real pleasure to talk to Rick. Um, he's got such a great recall and those stories are so unique and it's the details in them as well that that makes it so unique the you know the two peas in the phone you know being stuck in the phone box with a bunch of two peas and 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 just the the whole it really takes you back to that era you know if you're if you're old like me and you were around back then and you know and if you weren't yes it really was like that believe me um and and just the fact that you know, he, he was inspired to to go after Motorhead because he'd had a lecture with a famous ex-Vietnam War photographer. I mean, just great stories, and um, and and a, yeah, a real, real joy to talk to. Um, and that brings us to the end of yet another Motorcast. Um, look, I said it earlier. I hope you're enjoying listening to these as much as I am doing them. It's a it's a pleasure and it's an honour keeping the the name of Motorhead alive and just you know getting behind the scenes and getting beneath the skin of some of the old stories and legends and um, and talking to people that I hope you guys have never heard from before and making sure that we keep the legacy alive and we just. The, you know the name of Motorhead, it's iconic, and there are so many of these stories and so many people who want to talk about Lemmy and the Boys. It's unbelievable, and believe I, I, it really is because I know the guest list that's coming up, and yeah, it is unbelievable. So anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe. Please tell people about this, and remember, for all your Motorhead needs. All you need to do is go to imotorhead.com. That's all you need to do, and you can find everything you need to know about Motorhead there, including the podcast. Thank you very much. Speak to you again in a couple of weeks. I don't say agreed. The only God I need is the Ace of Spades. The Ace of Spades.